Welcome to episode one of Media Conversations with Malik Cooper. I am your host, Malik Cooper, and in this iteration of my podcast, I'll be interviewing Armand Brody, a man whose upbringing, experiences, and passion for sports combine to make a very intriguing interview. Episode one starts now, and I hope you enjoy the show. So you grew up in Clio, South Carolina, right? I did indeed, yes. That's an area that I'd like never even heard of, even though I've grown up in South Carolina my entire life. It's a very rural area. So that being the case, along with the fact that education and technology were in a totally different place while you were growing up, what was it like when you were growing up trying to pursue a career in media? It was interesting. I did not have a great deal of availability when it came to resources. Let me say that another way. Resources were not as available for me as they might have been for somebody else. I remember taking a video type class or I think it was an after school program and this gentleman from the district would come in and just show us some stuff with cameras, but it was not pronounced. It was not something that was emphasized growing up uh today's generation has so many more advantages i sound old saying that but growing up the 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 idea or the thought of knowing how to edit video by the time i was a teenager wasn't really something that i really thought could happen Uh, i just knew that i had a passion for communication i just knew i had a passion for visual storytelling but I really didn't know what that was going to look like because I didn't have the opportunities based on the resources I didn't have all of those things in place to help me begin to practice and to start to master that skill set So that being the case, what did it mean to you to be the Convergence Media Specialist at South Point High School and help some teenagers sort of get on the fast track to becoming media professionals? Being the Convergence Media Specialist at South Point was pretty cool for me. It was almost an opportunity of, I don't want to use the word redemption, but it was a chance for me to give what I did not receive at the same time period. So because I knew what I had missed because of my lack of resources and I had been given so much post-college, so much in the way of wisdom, but also practical uh, advice, practical tools, the ability to teach, I had all of those things uh, to give to the next generation that I didn't necessarily have uh, people to teach me. So it was an opportunity for me to really enjoy sharing what I've been given with the next generation. And it meant a great deal to me. And it was one of the true highlights of my professional career to this point was all the time I was able to spend showing the next generation the things that I was not shown myself at that same time period. 
Can you talk a little about what you did during college? Because we know college is like a very rough time for all students. But as a media professional, what was it like during your time at Francis Marion University? College was good in many ways. Stuck at times because Francis Marion, um, I love my alma mater, but as a university, especially as it pertained to mass communication, broadcasting, video production, we were way behind, way behind. Uh, Mindset, philosophy, resources, giving people opportunities, we were way behind. But I did get the chance to serve as the color commentator for basketball. I did that for three years, from my sophomore year until my senior year. So the last three years of my college career, I spent broadcasting games. Now, the games were attended by a few hundred people and viewed by probably less than that. But it was an opportunity for me to get experience. Ticked me off a little bit because um, I felt like I should have been doing play by play. And I felt like I deserved that opportunity. And the person who was doing play-by-play was not even a mass comm person. It was a business professor who was doing it as a favor to the department. And I was told that he was doing it for free. And it showed in his preparation and in his delivery. Um, Not the best partner I've ever had. But that's how it goes. I learned endurance i learned perseverance i learned to keep showing my face and even when i felt as though i was being mistreated or overlooked they knew i was going to be there and it helped build some goodwill between me and the fmu athletic department and so when i had already graduated and moved i was living near charlotte Uh, About a year and a half after I graduated, I got a call back from Francis Marion. They wanted me to become the sports information intern. And the reason they had that desire to give me that position was because they remembered all the years of hard work I had uh, put in during my time as the color commentator. Plus, at that time, I was also the sports editor. So I spent most of my college career just plugging away didn't see a whole lot of of fruit come forth from that until after I graduated and that's a lesson that I would tell anybody who was trying to come up in this business that a lot of times you just plant seeds and then years go by months go by weeks go by and there is a need, somebody retires, somebody quits, somebody dies, somebody leaves for whatever reason. And there's that need for that spot to be filled immediately. And people will remember if you work hard and if you do well, and if you, if, if the, if your passion and your work ethic shine through, people will remember who you were, how you performed, And it will make them want to come back to you when or if they need you. 
And so that is what happened to me at that time. And during that time, I got to do the play by play that I felt like I should have been doing um, as a student. So what I missed as a student, I got as an intern in a shorter amount of time. Not only did I do a lot of play by play, but I also really got to turn the volume up, turn the, the heat up on my, my video editing. And so you put all those things together and it made me a far more complete and versatile broadcaster and storyteller uh, in the sports round. So it sounds like you filled a variety of roles for your alma mater and sharpened a variety of skills. So then can you talk about how during that time period, during college and maybe after college, right after college, sort of, what was it like grinding away and just trying to get all the experience you could? Because, you know, there's a notion in this business for some that having experience is more important as far as getting hired than having that piece of paper that you get in the end finally with your bachelor's degree. There is some truth to that. When I graduated, it was a grind. I graduated in 2013 and I spent my time looking for work. But once again, I was not in Charlotte at the time. I was still in Marlboro County, my home county, where Clio is. And the nearest quote unquote big city, if you even want to call it that, was Florence, South Carolina. And there are a couple of news stations in Florence or in the Florence area, but there was not a lot of meat on the bone for me. And so I spent my time as a contributor to the local newspaper. And it was a grind. I got paid $30 a story. And I would just find these stories. I just I would just start writing these human interest stories. Sort of these racks to riches type stories because Marlboro County is a pretty impoverished for the most part county. There's not much there. We don't have a Target. We don't have a mall. We, we have one Walmart in the whole county. My hometown has no supermarket, has no Walmart, has no Old Navy. There's no plaza area where you shop at different stores and go get this or go get that. There's one gas station and a Dollar General. Wow. And that's it. And so it's one main gas station. There's another gas station, but it's not as uh, prominent, I'll say, as the aforementioned one but coming from all of that helped me realize that I was going to have to take the lemons of my surroundings and make some sort of lemonade and so that's what I did I started to do the writing with the Marlboro Herald the Marlboro Herald Advocate and the stories became so popular that they ended up hiring me full-time as a full-time reporter and advertising representative. I hated the advertising part because that's not what I do, 
but I love the fact that I got to help tell the stories of people in my home county, stories that would not have been told. And I heard back from many people who were telling me about how those stories inspired them to overcome some challenge or to want to go to college or pursue a dream. And I had the opportunity to share these amazing stories. People from my small county were becoming doctors and dentists and saving, literally saving lives in trauma units and pursuing NFL dreams. All these amazing things were coming from people in my home county. And I had the opportunity to tell those stories, but telling those stories came because I knew that I had to make money and I had to find a way to stay involved with this career that I pursued. At the same time, I started doing some play-by-play work with Coker University. This is in 2013 after I graduated. And that was the source of a bit of controversy in my family because I only got paid one time for all the basketball games. And then I did some baseball games the following spring, 2014. And there were some people in my family who thought I was basically wasting my time, that things were not happening the way they should have been happening for me, that I was being used because I only got that one check that I was running around in circles and they got fed up with me because they felt as though I was basically chasing a dream that would never come true. And so imagine how gratifying it was for me when in 2016, I was able to let them know that ESPN had hired me as a sports content researcher. All those things happened, but from 2013 until 2016, I spent much of my time trying to find stories to tell. And it's it was pretty cool because people always say, you know, so many journalists, not always, but so many journalists will say, or students in a journalism class will say, I don't know what to write about. I don't know what to talk about. And that's never the case. There's always a story. And if you go find it, if you look for it, you'll find it. And during that time, after I graduated, that's what I was doing. I was grinding away, finding stories to not only inspire my community, but to put food on the table for myself. You talked about your human interest stories inspiring the people of your community. Is there one specific one, maybe your most popular one that like that stood out the most to you or gave a reaction that you remember the most from people in your community? There are a few of them, actually. Um, I did one story on a, a pair of twins that actually graduated, who actually graduated with me. Uh, and uh, their quest for success in the financial field. I also did, a, the one that sticks with me the most is a story I did on a young lady who is a nurse uh, 
and she is the nurse who ends up watching over and saving lives of people who come straight into the in an, into an emergency environment like trauma like as soon as somebody say somebody's in a car accident and they're they're rushed into the hospital she is one of the nurses who tends to those people immediately and her story was amazing because her father had been arrested uh was in federal prison when she was like six years old and she went on graduated from high school graduated from college and when she graduated her father was there for her graduation and thinking about how much of a struggle it is just to make it out of Marlboro County but then to have the added weight of your father's imprisonment on your shoulders to see her now blossoming in her career as a young professional saving lives is probably the story that stays with me the most because of how inspirational it is and the fact that she is literally and I mean this literally she's saving lives but it's that much more noteworthy when you consider the struggle she had emotionally family-wise dealing with the impact of her father not being around her and knowing that her father was in federal prison for all those years. So that's probably the one that stays with me the most. I sort of relate to the family struggle you talked about when you went to Coker College and they didn't necessarily agree with all the decisions you make and all the jobs you took with them. Because I remember doing a project in school and it was career-based. It was sort of about our futures and just planning for being adults. And of course, I want to be a media professional. So I looked up what the median salary is for a journalism professor and the, what I had to use was the Bureau of Labor Statistics saying that the median income for us is about $35,000 or so. So imagine coming home and presenting that to your parents. And obviously they wouldn't want that to be what their child makes for the rest of their lives. What do you have anything else to say about your family's disagreements or even any media professional's family disagreements with your career outlook getting into this field? Well, I have a saying that I live by when it comes to this area in particular. Mm -hmm. You have to see it before you see it. You have to see it before you see it. I've known what I've wanted to do with my life since I was five years old. I saw it in 1996. I saw it as a young boy watching Keith Jackson and Brent Musburger and Dick Stockton and Joe Buck and Skip Carey and Ernie Johnson and all these amazing sports broadcasters. I saw it. I saw myself holding a microphone. I saw myself 
calling basketball, calling football. I saw myself being in front of the camera. I saw it. And so I would tell any professional or any blossoming or hopeful professional in this field, you have to see it before you see it. And if you are around people who don't see it the way you see it, that doesn't mean that it's not going to be there. So going back to my story about ESPN, the story of me announcing that I had been hired by ESPN, I actually was able to share that story with my father at a, and my mother at a huge birthday party. It was my dad's 60th birthday. So I had gotten the actual letter from ESPN in March. My dad's birthday is March the 25th. And I'd gotten the letter from ESPN uh, letting me know that they were making me the offer uh, about two weeks before that. So I sat on it. I didn't tell anybody in my family because I knew that they would blab. And I held it until that time. And I got up when it was time to present my dad with his gifts. I got up and I made a little announcement. I'd gotten him like a gift card. Uh, and then I read this letter, but I never said where the letter was from until the end of the letter. And so I say all that to say that for 20 years, from 1996 to 2016, I saw it. And it wasn't until 2016 that my family saw it too. So sometimes it may take a while for other people to see it. But if you stay the course, you're seeing it is going to pay off. And the other thing to remember is that there's more than one way to be a media professional. You can literally start your own YouTube channel, your own podcast from the ground up, learn the tools, learn the skills, learn how to target an audience learn how to cater your content to what your audience wants without necessarily producing games or calling games. There is still a way to be involved in the profession because the field is so broad. And that's the other thing that we have to teach people is that there's more than one way to do this thing. Like, you know, there's more than one way to, to make chicken. You might want to fry it one day. You might want to bake it one day. You might want to have it rotisserie. You might want to make chicken salad. There's more than one way to do it. And so not only do you need to see it before you see it, but you also need to remember that while you may want to do one thing, that if you are skilled enough at storytelling as a whole, that there are many avenues you can go down, many paths down which you can go to accomplish that route that you want to take. And that's one of the other things that I think we don't do well enough. We need to teach people that just because you have a degree or just because you have experience does not mean you have to only do that one thing. There are many people who produce games now and direct games now or call games now because they wanted to play the sport, but they stunk. So what did they do? They took what the passion, they took the passion they had. And instead of trying to play, they started talking about the people who do. So that's another element of it. You have to see it before you see it. And you have to see how broad the field is so that you, you understand there are many avenues, many roads you can take to get you down a path that's going to make you happy in your career.
So we've talked a little bit about you getting to ESPN in 2016. And we talked a lot about all that grinding you did 2013 and 2016, just trying to make something happen for yourself post-college. So would you say that opening that letter and telling your parents at that at your father's birthday party about how you got hired at ESPN, would you say that that was your I made it moment, so to speak? I'm still making it, honestly. Um, ESPN thing is interesting because I was only there a year and then I got laid off. I think what ESPN represented more than anything else for me and my family, or for my family and me, was that everything that I had worked for, I think they started to realize that this was what I was going to do with my life and that everything that I had done prior to had not been in vain. I don't, I don't consider that an I made it moment. It was, it's probably more of an I told you so moment more than, more than an I made it moment, but I'm not going to approach it that way because I'm not, I don't look at it. I'm just grateful. I'm grateful for the opportunity. I'm grateful for the timing of it because it happened around the time when I got to celebrate my dad's 60th birthday. It's a huge deal. Um, so that was great. But for me, it wasn't, I made it because I'm still making it. The reality is I got to ESPN and I, I, I was there only a year and then I got laid off. Is that making it? I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's making it. The work that I do now is making it in some ways because uh, I get to be on camera more. When I worked at ESPN, I was at ESPN, but I was working in research. I never wanted to work in research. I wanted to be a broadcaster because I believe that I have the potential to be a very good play-by-play -play broadcaster at that level. And I was actually trying to find a way to get some attention for that. Uh, and then I got laid off. So I wouldn't say that my ESPN tenure was an I made it moment. I would say that it was more so a, this thing is starting to become real to other people the way it had been real to me for the previous two decades. So when you said that you need to see it before you see it, and that you had a vision in mind for what you wanted to do from 1996 all the way to 2016. Can you tell the audience about some of the people you've idolized throughout your life, maybe growing up? You say you talked about Ernie Johnson and Joe Buck, who who were a little more of your favorites and what did you, what attributes did you want to take from them and put them into your skill set? How much time you got? So, <laughs> this is an easy one. This is an easy one for me. First of all, one of my mentors is a man that I still talk to this day. Uh, his name is Gary Griffith. He was one of my college professors and he was my sports broadcasting professor. And he and I still keep in touch. And I've been out of school eight years. 
uh, he is just somebody who is connected with um, opportunities within sports broadcasting, especially at the college level. On a broader scale, uh, I grew up a huge fan of Brent Musburger. Growing up, I thought Brent was exciting as a play-by-play man. I thought he brought great energy. Uh, He was a little over the top at times, but as he got older, he sort of mellowed and became one of my all-time favorite uh, broadcasters. I actually did like an eight-page paper on Brent in college. And I didn't really even have to source it because I just knew stuff. So I am a huge sports media nerd. I always have been. I love Kevin Harlan's voice. He has one of the most amazing voices to me um, of any broadcaster in any field, news, sports, radio, television, whatever. His attention to detail on radio is second to, to none. Uh, you know, he'll tell you it's a chest high snap the quarterback drops back five steps uh he cocks his arm and then he throws a high spiral down the far sideline and an over the shoulder catch was made by the receiver and he was brought down around his knees at the 10 yard line outside the far right numbers uh if you can't see that on radio then you are not trying to be in tune with what he's saying. So I love his voice. I love Joe Buck on television, big calls. He is great at keeping it simple and shutting up. Uh, One of his great calls uh, was Super Bowl 42 when the Giants and the Patriots were playing. And that's when the Giants put off the great upset. The Patriots were undefeated 16 and 0, trying to become the first team to go undefeated all the way through in more than 30, in more than 30 years. Yeah, it would have been 35 years, I believe at that time, the Miami Dolphins from 72 were the last team. And the clinching touchdown was a pass from Peyton, uh, from Eli Manning to uh, Plaxico Burris and I think Buck's call was something like uh, uh, Manning lobs it Burris alone touchdown New York that is an amazing television call because when you're doing television play by play they always tell you to speak in captions you don't necessarily need full sentences if that if that's a radio call it's different it's manning takes the shotgun snap drops back three steps he looks left he throws it high down the near left sideline burris is all alone he makes the over the shoulder catch in the back of the end zone near the pylon touchdown giants that that's the difference but you don't need all that on television and joe buck has mastered the art of brevity uh, among today's crop of play-by-play broadcasters. My actual, I would say my first heroes in sports broadcasting were Pat Summerall and John Madden. Uh, Everybody knows John Madden from the video games, but John Madden is probably the greatest football analyst of all time. His energy, his knowledge, He made games fun. He taught. He was so colorful, so animated. And Summerall was just this constant. He had this amazing, deep, baritone voice. And he was a student of Ray Scott. Ray Scott was the former 
play-by-play broadcaster with the Green Bay Packers way back in the 60s. And Stark was, uh, he was a minimalist. He kept it just a little, just, I'm not gonna give you a whole meal. I'm just gonna give you uh, some bite-sized portions. And that was Pat Summerall. So Summerall was this stern, uh, almost serious baritone voice voice was smooth as silk and his calls were so crisp and his voice was so commanding and authoritative and here's John Madden he's talking with his hands and he's saying boom all the time and he's rambling on and his voice is a little higher and he's a little out of control but it always ends up making sense and he was like this caricature this amazing character with all this personality and then Sonoral would come in first and 10 at the 31 Favre Freeman touchdown. Like, I just love that crew. My all time favorite announcing team. And Pat Summerall and John Madden are the reason that I really wanted to get into this business. They used to do so many Dallas Cowboys games, and I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. Most of my family is. So I got used to them. Aikman, Irvin, no flags, touchdown. Like that was my childhood. And I just grew up playing Madden video games and wanting to just take it. I used to get upset if the game that we had on Sunday was not a Summerall Madden game mm. because I wanted to hear the game from their perspective. I wanted them to give it to me because nobody could do it as well as they could. And so my love of sports broadcasting starts with Pat Summerall and John Madden. had to call the biggest sporting event in America the Super Bowl does that mean that Pat Summerall and John Madden are the team for you well absolutely absolutely um I remember watching the first Super Bowl that Fox ever broadcast was in 1997 it was the New, the New England Patriots versus the Green Bay Packers. The game was in New Orleans. I was only five years old, but I have some memories of it. Plus, I've gone back and watched the game on YouTube. And that, for people who don't know, so Pat Summerall and John Madden from 1981 until 1993, they were a broadcast duo at CBS. Fox came in and took the NFL broadcasting rights from CBS. They didn't take them, they 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 won them. They they paid the NFL a considerable amount of money at the time, insane amount of money, to grab the NFC rights from CBS. So when Fox first got the NFL package, the concern was all Fox had at the time was like Married with Children and The Simpsons. And who is going to broadcast these games? And sure enough, they made the absolute perfect decision 
by bringing in Summerall and Madden. And I remember that first Super Bowl that he did, and that was in 97. And any game that had Summerall and Madden on it uh, was the game that I wanted to watch. And interestingly enough, the very first Super Bowl that Tom Brady ever won was called in New Orleans by Pat Summerall and John Madden. And Adam Vinatieri hit the game-winning field goal to win the game for the New England Patriots. And Summerall's call was very understated, very, but that's that was his style, you know. Right down the pipe, Adam Vinatieri, the Patriots have won Super Bowl 36. Very understated, not super dramatic. That was just his style, but. Tom Brady is still playing. That was 19 years ago. He's still playing and still amazing. So just how life works is, is amazing to me. But Summerall and Madden would definitely be my crew. you have any thoughts on <clears throat> excuse me the way games are called today as far as having Peyton and Eli there along with the crew I have some thoughts on on that some people would say I'm, I'm old school but I don't really want to watch a game to just see Peyton and Eli basically have a podcast if you think about it that's really what it is they've got guests they've got they had shtick and little things they were doing when they first started i just want to watch the game and i want my broadcasters to give me the game i believe that a lot of the things that peyton manning and eli manning do can be done within the parameters of the game itself when I watch a game, I don't want to watch you. I want to watch the game. And so I, I just, I understand why ESPN did it. I mean, if you have a chance to have Peyton Manning and Eli Manning on your television as a part of your production, you have to do that. And ESPN has been chasing Peyton Manning to do Monday Night Football for years and years and years. So I get it, but I want to watch the game. So my, my thought process is get me some broadcasters who will have good chemistry, who will stay out of the way, and who will make the broadcast experience that much more enjoyable because the play-by-play -play man knows his or her job, the color person knows his or her job. I'd like a little bit of humor. I'd like, but, but, I, but keep me on this consistent wave throughout the broadcast. And I think no other team does that. No team does it as well right now as Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. Because Joe Buck is such a minimalist, I'm talking about NFL, because Buck is such a minimalist, he gives Aikman so much room to analyze and to color. So Aikman's got all the space. 
And as an analyst, that's what you want. You want as much space as you possibly can get between one play, between two plays. That's your time. And Buck gives him so much room. And it's just an enjoyable broadcast because they don't get in the way. And that's what makes it great to me. At the end of the day, we just want the game. Just give me the game. I don't want to see, you know, celebrities eating chips and dip during a Super Bowl. I don't care. You don't play. Uh, I understand that there is an audience for that, but forget that. Like the NFL to me is like this hallowed thing. It's all about the Super Bowl. It's all about the Lombardi Trophy, and that should always be first to me. Like if you're a football fan, you want to watch the game. I love broadcasting. I care about having good analysts and good broadcasters, but I'm not just going to go watch a game just, or, or not even watch a game. I'm not just going to go run to a Peyton and Eli broadcast just because they're there. If I want to watch the game and the game means something to me, I'm going to watch the game. If I don't care about the game, then Peyton and Eli may be an option. They could be an option, but they're probably not going to be because if I don't care about the game, why am I going to watch them? because the game is my first, the game is my priority. That's the game's the thing. And I think that networks need to remember that, that it's not all about the broadcasters because it doesn't matter who the broadcasters are. Ultimately, if the game is significant, people are going to watch the game. And that's what matters the most. about the chemistry between broadcasters being important. So let's transition a bit into studio shows and talk about how, or rather, what are some of your favorite studio shows and your favorite studio combos when you think about shows like PTI? Now, studio shows is a bit of a different discussion because because there is no game to watch at that time, you're watching a studio show for the people on the screen for entertainment yes and right like you're, like you're watching a studio show because you're you have somewhat you should in my opinion you should care about who says what and no show is more important on that level than inside the nba inside the nba is quite simply the greatest studio show of all time but one of the primary reasons that is the case is because the show is not overproduced. There is so much trust placed in Ernie Johnson to guide and direct the conversation, but there's also trust placed in Charles Barkley and Kenny Smith and Shaquille O'Neal to know where to go to entertain because ultimately, who wants to watch television and not be entertained? A little bit, at least. And they understand that. So they, they also understand that sometimes there's not a whole lot to say about a game. So if you want to go somewhere else, if you want to talk about COVID, if you want to if you want to talk about social issues in our society. You put trust in your people. And Turner does this so well. 
trust me. If you don't trust me, why did you hire me? If you don't trust me to say the right thing or to say at least a meaningful thing or a thought provoking thing, then why did you put me on your, on your, why did you put me on, on television? They get that. They'll talk about the election. They'll talk about social issues. They'll talk about something going on in pop culture. It's this, like you never know what you're gonna get from week to week. I don't watch a lot of NBA, but I DVR inside the NBA and I watch it every week because I, I know I'm going to be entertained, but I watch the show for them. That's how a studio show should be. Do we have the right personalities? Do we have the right mix? Have we given them time? Not just to spew out a bunch of useless facts or needless graphics, because anybody can do that. And trust me, I was a researcher, so I know how that works. Not every graphic is necessary. Sometimes producers want graphics just to kill 15 or 20 seconds because they need to run, they need to kill time on a show. Because sometimes, Malik, there's just not that much to talk about. Sometimes it's team A played way better in every way than team B and they throttled them. Mm-hmm. And, and there's not really, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's not always this, we got to break this down and we got to break. No, we don't. Like they're just better. And they, they thumped them. They destroyed them. And that's what happened. The better team won. Now let's talk about something else. And that doesn't need, that doesn't need a lower third. It doesn't need a topic bar. It doesn't need a bunch of B-roll or a bunch of clips or footage to support that. Sometimes you just can know that one team is far better than another and you can put trust in the people who are on the screen to help tell the story. And Turner does that better than anybody else. just talked about inside the nba being the greatest studio show of all time and it's obviously been on for a very very long time so yes can you talk a little about how the show has changed over time while you've been watching it maybe what caused those changes and if they were for better or for worse two words charles barkley inside the nba was for a few years the late 90s Kenny Smith had retired and Ernie for before that Ernie was by himself Mm. and he would have he would have guests I remember he would have like Cheryl Miller or Reggie Theus during the week especially during the playoffs they would have these guests come in and then somewhere around like 97 98 ish I think Kenny Smith joined and then in 2000 Charles Barkley joined and just changed the game Charles Barkley is perhaps the most important sports television figure in the last 20 years. I would say you've got John Madden before that, John Madden from the 80s, and then Charles Barkley from like 2000 to present day. You always want to know what Charles Barkley thinks about something, whether it's on the court or in the world. You just want to know because he's so outspoken. He 
he stands by his guns. He says what he means and he means means what he says. Usually, sometimes he's sometimes he'll make some outrageous statements just for the for the sake of it. But he's been consistently himself. And the hardest thing to be in television is yourself because there are so many people who are watching you who are going to have something to say right away. You, you don't look good enough. Your hair is not the right color. Your voice is too this. And it's not enough that. You don't come across as genuine. And so in your head, and people are tweeting you, right? They're, they're, they're mentioning you during the broadcast. Hey man, you suck and all this kind of stuff. And if you're not careful, it gets to you and it will slowly and sometimes um, and sometimes in, in a way that doesn't even like unconsciously or subconsciously, what you've done is you've, you've taken in their criticisms and you start changing who you are. But he's been so consistent, Charles Barkley has, at just being himself. And it's been refreshing, even when you disagree with him. It's like at least he had the courage to say something that other people were not going to necessarily agree with. That's not common in our society now. Nobody wants to be disliked. Nobody wants to even be disagreed with. And quite frankly, we don't even have a society that knows how to disagree anymore. And so the fact that Charles can say what he feels and be authentic and just shoot the breeze, it's refreshing. And it's one of the key reasons why Inside the NBA has been so good for so long. It's gonna be a sad day whenever uh, whenever the, those, those guys hang it up. And it's kind of weird because we don't think about it, but EJ is 65. Kenny Smith will be 60 soon. Chuck turned 60 in a year and a half, really a year and like two months. And Shaq is, Shaq turns 50 in March, if I'm not mistaken. They're getting older and it's just like, who is going to, who's gonna pick up the, the baton here and keep this thing going? There are some people out there like Draymond Green, I think is gonna be a, a compelling television personality full-time. There's a reason he fills in on Inside the NBA like every year, it seems. But it's a different day, Malik, and people are not, people are not, the industry and the, the, the public, they say they want you to be yourself, but they really don't want you to. They want you to be something that they can sort of manipulate or like on their own terms. And that's hard for someone trying to come into the business because it's so subjective. Like there's no one way to be a broadcaster. There's just, there's no one way. There's no one way. There's, there are different looks, different backgrounds. So, and, and some of it is just who you know and style. I like his style over her style. I like his voice over his voice. I know his grandfather so he's gonna get the spot that maybe he doesn't necessarily deserve because he's not as good as the other person but we just like all those things are real and they happen but if you can be yourself at least you can go to bed at night knowing that you were honest with yourself and that you were honest with that that little red light and that camera that you were looking into
So you talked about how Charles Barkley is the most influential broadcaster over the past 20 years. Obviously, he's a former player. Shaq is a former player. Kenny Smith is a former player. And sometimes if you get the right mix and they all have good chemistry, something as beautiful as inside the NBA can occur. But then you've also got people like Brian Hollinston on um, first take, Paul Pierce, and then players only was not very well received. So what is, what's the difference, do you think, between someone coming off as authentic and refreshing like Charles Barkley on Inside the NBA and then how players only was a train wreck? Well, a couple of things. Number one, don't overlook the importance of Ernie Johnson. Ernie Johnson makes the show go. He does. He's got every stat. He's got every stand, like the standings. He knows how many games back team X is from the eighth spot. He's got all these things at his disposal. If you watch the show, very rarely do Shaq, Kenny, and Chuck have anything more than maybe a rundown or a stat sheets by their desk, by their spot. EJ's got all these notes and he's got these different colors he's been highlighting and he's so prepared. Ernie Johnson is the is the is the anchor. That's what anchors do. Anchors keep things in place and they and anchors keep the the, the boat, the ship, from flying apart. And that's what Ernie Johnson does. So that's one of the key reasons. The other thing is it's not an overproduced show and they're not necessarily looking for hot takes. One of the biggest problems in our sports media society is people think the only way you can be well known is if you say something controversial. And this was, and I guess in some ways, Charles Barkley is responsible for this. The PTIs and the first takes of the world. The assumption is that that's all people really want. People just want this debate type television. And it's not always necessary. If you give me people who like each other, who know how to talk to one another, I'll tell anybody, you know, I do a lot of television now at my job and I'll tell the people that I work with, just talk to me, forget the camera. They'll say, well, do I look at you or do I look at the camera? Would you look at me any other time? Yes, you would, because we're having a conversation. And let the camera find you. Let it find you. The direct, that's why you hire directors. They know what camera shot to go to. If you pay attention to Inside the NBA, watch the number of times they change camera shots. And, and watch the number of times that Chuck, Kenny, and Shaq are actually looking at the camera. They were told by Tim Kiley years ago, do not look into the camera. That's not, it's, it's not natural. The camera's just there. Let it find you. So the show is not overproduced. And Ernie Johnson holds that show together. He's so respected. He's so prepared. His personality is just class act. For sure. And and you put all those things together and you get somebody, like they trust him to hold the show together. But also you got a producer, uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Levin, I think is his name now. It was Tim Kiley. But follow us, trust us. You trust Shaq, you trust Kenny, you trust Chuck. They play the game, trust them and follow them and listen to them. 
like there are so many times where one of the guys will say something and within 30 seconds one of their uh one of their uh creative people has done some draw some photoshop thing where chuck's head is on some crazy something's body that's because the entire production crew is listening and they've actually made it a point to give the people content you watch so many halftime shows and so many studio shows now there's so many commercials you've got first of all there are too many people on a lot of these sets why do you have five people on a set and you've got a 30 minute show that's got only 11 minutes of content what can you say in that time? And you've got this sponsored segment, Burger King this, and you've got the AT&T that, and it's now time for the Verizon Wireless ta 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 You have no time to actually give the people content. So if you are going to produce a show that is supposed to be about basketball, guess what people want to see? Basketball. So talk about it. It's not that hard. Talk about what the people are watching your show to see and stop overproducing. We always say you want to act like it's just a couple of guys at the bar. Treat it that way. Stop all of the overproducing. Get rid of some of the lower thirds and just follow the people on your screen. Let them talk and you follow. Yes, you should have your sponsored elements set up. You have to do those because they're paying you money. Yes, you need to have your video. You need to have your B-roll on standby. But let the flow be determined by the people who are talking. Follow what your analysts are saying. And don't just try to cram stuff in there just for the sake of it. It's, it's just not a good way to watch television. You want there to be some level of authenticity. I mean, television is, is it never, if you're on TV, it's not 100% authentic, authentic because there is an element of performance in it. We get that. But as close as you can be to authenticity, strive for that and stop overproducing the, like, let people talk. If I have at my job, I work at a scientific research organization. If I have at my job an engineer, who has a PhD in this field, what do I look like? Not giving that engineer the floor and saying, these are the questions that I have. I ask them, you talk, you know, I don't know, you know. So it is the job of the anchor, the host, Ernie Johnson. How much does Ernie talk during the inside the NBA? They talk over him all the time. A lot. Like there is no, there is no, there is no, well, you know, I've got to talk. And then, you know, you talk for 10 seconds, a quick thought, Shaq. And then a quick thought, Chuck. And then a quick, like it takes, it takes Chuck 20 seconds to decide what he's going to say while he's talking. So that like, you have to know all of that and you have to give your people, your analysts, the space to create the space to say what they need to say. And then you listen and you follow and you and you and you invest in hosts and you encourage your hosts to drive this thing to where we need it to go. But give your people space to work. That's what you want to do. And that's what makes good television.
Earlier, you mentioned how you believe in today's society, we don't know how to disagree. So can you talk about how that's affected the state of the media today? It's terrible. (laughs) We only listen now to people who have opinions that we share. So what, and if you and I disagree, then it's, it's not enough for us to just have a, diff, a differing opinion. You are now an idiot because you don't agree with me. You're a terrible person and you need to be removed from earth. You need to be just grabbed and picked up and dropped off on like Saturn because you don't agree with me. Yeah. Well, how does that affect us in media? It creates this tribal-like atmosphere where everybody just runs to their corners and nobody comes together just to share opinions. It's okay for us to not agree. It's okay. If I'm secure enough in who I am, your opinion shouldn't threaten me. Why would your opinion bother me? You're entitled to have it. Why can't I have mine and why can't you have yours? Is, is that not, it, it, that's simple, isn't it? It used to be. Like you should be able to have, if you feel that LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all time, fine. You're not terrible. And plus, in the grand scheme of things, who cares? Okay. Is, it, is my life going to be if my life is reduced, if the quality of my life is reduced in any way, because you feel LeBron James is a better player than Michael Jordan, I need to do some serious reevaluating. Does that have anything to do with how, did you hear or see recently that Chuck came out and said, if you do the LeBron versus Jordan debate, you have no talent? <laughs> It doesn't sound like you heard that yet. It doesn't sound like you've seen him said that yet. I love it. I love it. I love it because you know he's you know he's exaggerating because that's what Chuck does. But that's funny. But how many Malik? How many times can we have this debate? How many times? How many times Infinite. can we? How many times? LeBron wins another title. Okay, how about yes, now? They bring it up every time something new major happens. If he gets the scoring record, <laughs> they're going to talk about it. If he gets a ring, they're going to talk about it. If he hypothetically won another MVP, they're going to talk about it. You can have it. See, that's the problem. Before. That's the problem. See, here's the issue. And like I said, debate television is responsible for a lot of this. We always have to put stuff now into some larger context. And so instead of it being how great is this accomplishment by LeBron? That's not big enough. We need to put it into some larger context. So now we need to say, as opposed to saying, how great is this accomplishment for LeBron? We need, we now need to say, well, does this accomplishment now place LeBron in front of or ahead of Michael Jordan? Because really the, the idea is to just get you to feel. If I get you so stirred up that you just feel something, maybe you'll watch and maybe maybe you'll watch Skip, maybe you'll watch Stephen A. Smith, and maybe you'll just let those guys' comments just fill you with this uncontrolled rage 
or uncontrolled happiness because they're saying something you agree you agree with. And my perspective is, who cares if they agree with me or not? Now, if I want to watch, I want to be entertained, that's fine. But Stephen A. Smith's opinion does not add legitimacy or take away legitimacy from mine. If I'm a fan, I'm entitled to have whatever opinion about Michael Jordan or LeBron James that I want to have. And Stephen A. Smith is entitled to have the same opinion or a different one. We move on. It used to be, to me, that simple, but it's not anymore. Because I feel like a lot of the, a lot of people now need to say, well, Stephen A. said this. I'm like, okay, and? Good for him. Well, Skip Bayless said, and? Does Skip Bayless pay my rent? He doesn't. Does Stephen A. buy my groceries? I don't think so. Does, does Skip pay my car note? Mm-mm. Okay. Let them have an opinion and let me have mine. It's okay. Does that okay. go back to the tribal and mentality? The thing, there's no right thing? answer. Huh? I was saying, does that go back to the tribal mentality you were talking about, though? Because it kind it of puts people to, it, are you in the Jordan camp? Are you in the LeBron camp? Are you in the mm-hmm. other camp? The, the skip I'm in the camp, greatness the camp. camp. I'm in the greatness camp. How about that? I'm in the greatness camp. Just appreciate, let's, let's, now I'm a Cowboys fan. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. So that means I don't like Washington. Definitely don't like Washington. Can't stand Washington. Right. I don't like the Eagles. Definitely don't like the Eagles. Can't stand the Eagles. And I don't like the Giants. Definitely don't like the Giants. Can't stand the Giants. (laughs) So like those things are understood. However, you have just as much right to like one of those teams as I do to dislike Right. It goes both ways. That's it. That's all I want people to understand as it pertains to sports in our society. It goes both ways. Now, do you want people to have a, to, to exhibit a certain level of knowledge when they come and have a discussion? Yes. You want people to have stats? Yeah, sure. You know, you need to know. It, it's nice if you know that LeBron James has won X number of MVPs, X number of finals, uh, of final series. He's been the finals MVP this number of times. That's good. But at the same time, those things were voted on by people. And people make errors. People make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. You know, there were there were a couple of times when Michael Jordan didn't win the MVP, I'm sure, because people just tired of got people just got tired of giving it to him. So let's give it to Barkley. Let's give it to Carmelo. Is Carmelo a better player than Michael Jordan that year he won MVP? Probably not. I mean, you know? Yeah. Probably not. Derek Derek Rose won MVP and I was glad. I was glad he won. Is that 2011? 2011, yeah. You, yeah. What, what year did Malone win? 90, what was that? 98? 7? One of them. Well, you're yeah, the, you're the NBA. I think you went back to back 98, 99. You're the, you're the NBA historian here, so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you know that. You know that. But that's not what this is for, but you know that. But, okay. You can see the, the two jerseys in my room. I do. 
So congratulations. <laughs> you can see the, the, the wall behind me, yes. But, okay. Somebody had to vote on Andre Iguodala won the finals MVP. Yes, he did. Okay. I felt like LeBron should have won it, even though they lost. Mm-hmm. It's opinion. It's some opinion. people saying Chris Paul should have won MVP last year, and some people felt like that was crazy. They were. Some people were saying that. Absolutely. Now there was no way in the world he was going to get it, but people were saying that. Absolutely. It's not about whether or not you agree. It's okay. Did you just did you bring some level of? Can can you help just make the conversation intelligent? Can we just have? Healthy, intelligent. Yeah, that's it. Can can you help me? Can you can you help me see your perspective, even if I completely disagree with it? Right. Can you at least help me get to why you think the way you think about that? Okay, cool. I don't agree, but cool. That's it. And you can even do it. You can do it in an entertaining way. It just doesn't have to be like, let's cancel somebody because they feel like Tim Duncan is the greatest player of all time. Cool. Feel that way. Right. Fine. Fine. It's absolutely fine. But there's this need. We, we, we have to put things in this. And here's the other problem. We use words like best, worst, greatest, very hyperbolic. We are so stuck on hyperbole. We're so stuck on these definitive statements. Like it's the 14th game of the season. Now who's the Super Bowl favorite? It's gonna change next week. Yep. Who's the best team in the AFC now? Like, what do you mean? Like, oh, who's the best team in, in, in the AFC? I have we have opinions on it. But it's gonna change next week if if the Chiefs yeah. lose and then the Patriots win or vice whatever happens, your opinion is gonna change. The Patriots so are the best team in the AFC. Then they lose to the Colts and then the Chiefs win. Now the Chiefs are the best team. What are in we the doing? AFC. Yeah, because the Chiefs were losing for a while. Their defense right. looked bad. And their homes didn't look sharp. And everybody was like, "Well, the Patriots are the favorites now." And then they lose one game. You know what? It's all about the Chiefs now. Like. For two it's seconds, it's to tighten. It's ever changing. Yep. It's ever changing. So how can we land solidly if our opinions are always changing in response to whatever we just saw? That's all it is. You got to understand the game. And I don't know if a lot of fans do. I, I think they get so emotionally wrapped up in what they hear. And it's the same thing in politics. It's the same thing. Because if, if my side has an opinion... We may have said that thing five years ago on our side, but then the other side said it, and now they're, they're horrible people. Somebody will go find a tweet about something you said and your side said from five years ago, and you agreed with the thing that the other side is now saying. They're horrible now, but you weren't horrible then. So what's the deal? You look like a hypocrite. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. You got to understand the game. You got to understand the game. They want you to feel not think and i think it's possible for us to have healthy debate in sports and in our society without trying to get rid of one another for having an opinion different from our own
thank you for listening to episode one of Media Conversations with Malik Cooper. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can follow me on Instagram at Malik Cooper Media for more content just like this. Once again, thanks for tuning in and be on the lookout for episode two.